Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Amanda Branch. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin Par LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinpar.com slash podcast. Go there and you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. This is the first part of a two-part podcast on patents, computers, and artificial intelligence. A little while ago, two of our colleagues, Paul Horble and Paul Blizzard, did a webinar on patents and artificial intelligence. One of our listeners was Dan Harrison of Salesforce. He contacted both Pauls, and that resulted in an interesting conversation regarding Dan's experience with the patent process. We asked them to have that conversation again, and this podcast is the result. Paul Horrible is a partner, lawyer, and patent agent in our Toronto office. He's a member of the firm's Electrical and Computer Technology Group and is the chair of the Financial Technology Group. Much of his practice is involved in securing patent protection for high-tech and fintech clients. Paul Blizzard is an associate lawyer and member of our Electrical and Computer Technology and Artificial Intelligence Practice Groups. Before going to law school and learning how to draft patents, Paul received his Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering at Queen's University and worked for over a decade in software engineering, web development, e-commerce, artificial intelligence, and clean tech. We spoke with Dan and both Pauls from their home offices in or near Toronto. So Dan, please tell us a little about yourself and about uh, Salesforce. Sure. And thank you for including me. My name is Dan Harrison. I'm the master enterprise architect on the emerging technologies team at Salesforce. You may know Salesforce as the leading cloud provider of CRM, marketing, reporting, but on our team, we focus on new innovation like environmental sustainability, blockchain, and of course, artificial intelligence. I am sharing my personal perspective today, not specifically the Salesforce view, but a combination of over 25 years in IT and over a dozen filed patents, including a few from my IBM days. I'm always looking for new ideas and excited to share some of what I have learned about the patent process from an inventor's perspective. Thank you. And maybe both Pauls, could you explain sort of your technical background and some of the work you've done in in prosecuting AI patents? Sure, well, I'll start. This is Paul Horble. My background is in electrical engineering. Uh, I studied that uh, uh, for some time. I finished a master's degree in that before going off to law school and becoming a patent lawyer. And uh, as, as a result of that, I've worked on a lot of computer-related technologies throughout my career. And recently, there's a, been a lot of activity and development in AI systems. And so naturally, a lot of those things, uh, many inventors want to patent some of those ideas. And so I've had the opportunity to work with inventors on a variety of machine learning and AI uh, inventions, um, things like biomedical diagnostic systems, uh, financial systems, uh, anywhere you can you can squeeze an AI these days, there's certainly someone trying to, and uh, then as a result, uh, attempting to get patents for it. Hi, and Paul Blizzard here. Um, I work in the firm's uh, electrical and computer technology group, as well as the uh, artificial intelligence practice group. Um, I also, I have a background in computer engineering. Uh, I did my my undergrad in computer engineering, and then I worked as a developer in Toronto for about 10 years after I graduated before I went back to law school. And uh, now I work mainly in patent prosecution, and that includes a significant number of 
AI and ML based uh, technologies. Um, so yeah, we uh, previously put together uh, an event called Primed for AI, uh, the basics of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, I think that that was kind of the gateway to, to get everyone together on this discussion. Great. Dan, you mentioned you worked with uh, a lot with patents. What type of patents are you focused on? Yeah, I've been doing patents for quite a while. I started when I was at IBM and I started looking at patents around cloud computing and provisioning. And so that's really where I got the bug to start doing patents. And it's been kind of a pet project for me uh, because it becomes so easy when you've got a good patent team working with you to really get those patents written up. Now at Salesforce, my focus is a lot more on AI, blockchain, and things like that, some of the emerging technologies. And in the AI space, uh, there's been a lot of changes, and it really became one of those areas that there's a lot of possibilities for patents, but you've got to look at it the right way. And when I sat in on the webinar with Paul and Paul, they were really able to help me understand and articulate better some of the reasons why AI patents are a little bit difficult, um, but also where they have a good, uh, good fit. Um, Einstein is the Salesforce product we, we have for AI, and we do have some healthcare demos and, and products that are out there where you can really make a difference in organizations' ability to do things quickly by using AI. And granted, those things need to be patented and protected. So, so Dan, one of the problem areas in terms of protection of artificial intelligence-related inventions is some of these things are just doing what a human can do. And, and what does that do then in terms of getting patents on it? Yeah, and, and obviously, as the not a patent uh, lawyer on the call, that they can go into a lot more detail. But one of the one of the things a lawyer once told me is, if it can done, be done by a hundred people in a hundred years, then it's not really a patentable, at least not a technology patent. And so, one of the things from an AI perspective is humans can't do the same work, at least not with the same level of security protection. And that's one of the areas where one of my patents is with a colleague around how you can pull in information from many different sources, build an AI model, and provide just the result. And so that protection of privacy is something that as soon as you introduce a human into the mix, the possibility of that information being leaked out by a human goes way up. And so there are a lot of processes where you have high degree of protectionism required in healthcare, in uh, financial and legal areas, that AI really gives you a new tool. So I think that's one of the areas that I look at, because you're right, you don't just want to replace what could be done with a pencil and paper with AI and call it patentable, because that's just not the way it works. Either of the polls, do you want to weigh in a bit on your perspective on applying a patent in the AI space versus human? Sure. Um, so one of the one of the main challenges that we face when we draft applications and when we um, move forward with examination within uh, trying to argue with an examiner and and overcome the rejections that they have one of the main rejections that we see with computer software is uh, what's referred to as subject matter eligibility uh, it happens um, in 
all around the world in different jurisdictions, but for our practice, we see a lot in the United States and in Canada. Um, and in this case, often, as you said, uh, rejections are often made on that basis that the um, that if the invention is uh, is something that really could be accomplished by a human with a with a pen and paper, um, the question is. Um, you know what? What is the is the fact that it's done on a computer itself? Um, you know, subject matter eligible. Uh, so one of the main challenges that we have when we build these applications and when we look to documenting AI and machine learning technologies is trying to to find the structure and to find uh, parts of the application and how they connect that uh, that describes it in a in, in a very technical way and in a way that uh, uh, that avoids um, that avoids rejections that uh, that that an individual would be able to reproduce the the same steps on pen and paper. Uh, Paul Horble. Yeah, I think um, I think a, a great way to distinguish something that is patentable from, uh, or at least one indicator of something that is patentable versus not patentable, is uh, is understanding the difference between the end result and the process you use to get to that end result. If the process closely mimics the way humans would do, would solve the same problem, if you're just repeating certain steps but using a computer, um, then that's an indication that probably you don't have something that is going to be patentable subject matter. Uh, but on the other hand, if the computer is going about solving the problem in a very different way than humans would do it, um, then you may have an indication, or that is an indication that uh, you're on the right track towards being something patentable. Even if the end result resembles what a human would accomplish, uh, it's really a question of how did you get to that result? And if that, if that process is, is different, then you're in good shape. An example here might be something like a computer animation system, for example. You know, human animators train for a long time. There's some artistic element involved in what they're doing. Uh, skill and judgment, and you know, a computer may be able to replicate what they're doing, but it's not using, it's not necessarily using some sort of artistic mindset. It's really just crunching a bunch of numbers to achieve the sim a similar result. So that number crunching process might be patentable, even though the end result will resemble something a human animator might have accomplished. So that that's one indicator there. I like the example you used when we talked about this one-on-one -on -one before about self-driving vehicles. Although the end result is a car driving from point A to point B, and a human looks at its stop sign and knows it has to stop, a human knows when it gets to an intersection to look for vehicles, the process for evaluating what is a stop sign is very different when you've got LIDAR and vision and radar and mapping tools in place versus the human process. Um, and that was one of the things when we were talking that really helped me solidify, when can I use AI um, as something novel in my patents versus is it just doing the exact same review of the data and coming up with the same results? So that was, that was a good example. And I like the artistic one as well, um, because yeah, if you have to draw every hair on one of the characters, in a uh, movie, you're doing it very differently with different brush strokes than when you're animating those characters in the modern movies where they're actually having calculations and interactions between those individual strands of hair to create that same basic look in the graphics. So good examples. Yeah, and I think, 
I think the car example uh, brings up another really useful point, which is that um, a car has to operate in real time. So even if you, even a hundred people uh, taking a hundred years could interpret the the information from a lidar sensor, that's little help to the person that's being uh, carried along in this car at uh, 100 kilometers per hour. So uh, you know there's a practical element that comes into it as well. Uh, if you're integrating additional information that a human wouldn't be able to do. And maybe if you're doing that in, in, in a time-sensitive environment, then that's an additional indicator that uh, maybe there is indeed something patentable happening here. We see that with medical quite often, uh, just prioritizing which patients need to be accessed uh, or seen by a physician more quickly. Although you might not want the AI making the final diagnosis, identifying who needs to see the doctor first and who can be scheduled a follow-on appointment can be very, very important. Um, and I've done some work in the uh, around diabetic retinopathy and prioritizing those patients was a very interesting thing. Uh, it was just a straightforward model, so not patentable. But uh, again, those are the kind of areas that we look at um, and I try to figure out if there's something patentable there. And that's part of the challenge is you got to know the technology quite well and what's already in the industry before you start to put the paper in for a patent. So Dan, speaking of registering patents, you've uh, used various firms to register your patents. What differences have you found on the process? Yeah, so I, I got interested to uh, introduce the patent process at IBM where we did our own prior art search. So the expectation was you would you were a subject matter expert and should be very aware not only what the competition is doing currently, but also go into the patent uh, registrar and, and do some searching. And this was 10, 15 years ago. So the process was a little bit more painful back then. Um, but at Salesforce, they make it a lot easier. And I know you do the same. The idea there is, is that you don't want to be looking at other patents because you don't want to potentially um, take somebody else's idea and inadvertently include it in what you're putting into place. So I think Paul and Paul last time took me through willful infringement and some of the considerations there. I think that would be a great message to share with the audience. Yes. Uh, in in the United States, uh, there is risk that is associated with doing pa patent searching prior, uh, like uh, as an inventor or as uh, as as an organization. In some cases, this is because um, willful infringement uh, can potentially um, re result in triple damages uh, for a potential uh, infringer. However, um, we do, as a matter of practice, uh, look to searching. Uh, in order to inform uh, the patent uh, drafting process and to inform uh, sort of the questions about patentability of a particular invention. Um, however, uh, what I would also say is that in 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 the case of locating close art, what it what it does is provide some notice and some information that can be beneficial to allow for uh, an organization or an inventor to to invent around to look for other strategies that uh, can be undertaken in order to address the case where uh, a piece of prior art is very close or if there's a particular features that are of interest in a particular invention that uh, that may be high risk in a particular scenario. 
Yeah, I think just to jump in here as well, I think uh, it's sort of an unfortunate or unintended consequence of the treble damages regime in the US that inventors don't search the patent databases uh, or that they're given this advice not to search anymore. Um, you know, one of the fundamental purposes of the patent system is to spread information. And uh, if you know what else has been patented, that may encourage you to go a different direction and ultimately come up with a better invention. So uh, I think we should try to encourage inventors to understand what else is out there as much as possible. Although I certainly understand why some organizations don't want to take that risk. Uh, and just to just to elaborate there, the risk is that if an inventor comes across a, a prior patent and uh, then subsequently their their invention or their work somehow incorporates uh, some aspect of this prior patented work and it can be shown that they knew this and they did it intentionally, then in an infringement trial or in a patent trial, and if they're found to infringe later on, there is a risk that they, they could be assessed triple damages, so three times what they otherwise would have been assessed. Um, it, this doesn't always happen, and in fact, I think the standard, the bar is relatively high for to be awarded triple damages or treble damages. Um, but nevertheless, the risk of it is enough to scare some some individuals and some organizations into uh, you know keeping their inventors from doing too much patent searching, just so that there's no uh, there can be no allegation that they knew what was out there because they simply never search and they're they're instructed never to search, which, like I said, is. A little bit unfortunate because ultimately the, the purpose of the patent system is to spread knowledge rather than to limit who, who sees these things. Our guests today have been Dan Harrison of Salesforce and Paul Horrible and Paul Blizzard of Restaurant Park. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Breskin and Park professionals, especially Paul Horrible and Paul Blizzard, would be pleased to speak to you about patents and artificial intelligence. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting bereskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. And listen to the original webinar that Paul Horpo and Paul Blizzard did that got Dan Harrison interested in talking to us. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It's free, and it notifies you when there's a new episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.